Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 7. Again, thank you, Adam, choir, orchestra, for leading us, preparing us for the preaching of the word. The Lord indeed is our shield. You don't need a shield unless you take hits, right? Wonderful song. Thank you for encouraging us in that. Today is a special day for Heather and me. Uh, 23 years ago, it was actually on the 29th, but this is the Sunday. We had our first service in here. I was in, as an intern 23 years ago. Tomorrow, 23 years ago, I was pulling weeds. <laughs> you interns today, you, you are soft. You are soft. <laughs> but we uh, also want to announce Tuesday morning, we have our preaching class. So if you have any kind of sense of call, you men, we have books. Uh, Miss Gretchen Hood has them in the office. And they're $28, but that's for the whole year. That's the book we're going to go through. If you're broke, it's on the house. So you come get the book and don't disappear if you take that book. Uh, we know where you are. Um, and, and so Tuesday morning, 6.30 in room 208. And uh, two chapters, the first two chapters are due this mor uh, Tuesday. But if you don't have time to read, that's okay. Uh, but we'll be discussing some pertinent issues uh, concerning preaching and, and just the gospel ministry. Well, if you would look with me, we're going to be in chapter 7, but for context, uh, we know that the Bible comes with a context. If we remind ourselves from chapter 6, verse 65, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for the Gospel of John. We thank you for giving us an inspired, revealed picture of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, perhaps the most important application for the Gospel of John is to behold and believe. May we behold today and believe even more. By the Spirit of Christ, we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, a, a very ironic thing happened to me on Friday morning. Uh, I was asked to come speak to the Auburn High School football team pregame chapel. Um, what was ironic about it was that they were playing my beloved alma mater, the Enterprise Wildcats. I never thought I would ever do that, but I did. And after I concluded my message, I was compelled to say, beat the cats. <laughs> then I turned around, and I was looking at the defensive coordinator, Coach Goolsby, and I said, that was weird. <laughs> and he said, I bet it was. <laughs> of course, an irony 
is a situation that is strange because something happens in a way that seems the opposite of what you would expect. Irony. Last year in Reader's Digest, there was an article in July 2021 edition on real-life ironies. I encourage you to read. It's a very interesting article. Let me just give you a couple of those from the article. Do you know that the most shoplifted book in the world is the Bible? In fact, I had a student who shoplifted the Bible, and he read it and was converted. He tried to return the Bible, but the bookstore had gone out of business. I told him, because of people like you. <laughs> a second irony uh, from this article, every year, ABC actually cuts down a Charlie Brown Christmas, which is a Christmas cartoon about the over-commercialization of Christmas. And they do so to make room for commercials. A third irony from that book, the only, or article, that on, the only coach with a losing record in the history of the University of Kansas basketball program is James Naismith, who invented basketball. <laughs> ironies. Now, those are interesting ironies, but those ironies cannot and do not change your life. But there is one irony that ultimately did and will change the world. The coming of the Son of God in the flesh, as Paul would describe it, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is the most astounding irony in the history of the world. And, and there's been no one in, in, that I'm aware of that has written more eloquently about the irony of the incarnation than the great Puritan Thomas Brooks. And I want to share this great paragraph with you from Thomas Brooks that speaks about the irony of the incarnation. That Christ should come from the eternal bosom of the Father to a region of sorrow and death. That God should be manifested in the flesh. The Creator made a creature. That he that was clothed with glory should be wrapped with rags of flesh he that filled heaven and earth with his glory should be cradled in a manger. That the God of the law should be subject to the law. The God of the circumcision circumcised. The God that made the heavens working at Joseph's homely trade. That he that binds the devils in chains should be tempted. That the God of strength should be weary. The judge of all flesh condemned. The God of life put to death. That that head before which the angels do not cast down their crowns should be crowned with thorns. And those eyes purer than the sun put out by the darkness of death. Those ears which hear nothing but hallelujahs 
of saints and angels to hear the blasphemies of the multitude. That mouth and tongue that spake as never man spake, accused for blaspheming. Those hands that freely swayed the scepter of heaven, nailed to the cross. Indeed, glorious irony is found in the Son of God made flesh. But that leads to other ironies, very painful ironies, in fact. And the first thing we see in the first part of our chapter, verse 7, or chapter 7, is the irony of murderous threats during a festival of life, a festival celebrating life. Notice with me in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, we just read that we saw many of his spurious disciples who have left him. Many departed. And the reason they departed was because they did not like what Jesus was teaching. He was teaching the whole counsel of God. And, and that kind of weeded them out. They had their own version of, of Messiah. And, and once that version was exposed as a lie, they did not love and like Jesus anymore. And we've also seen something even more ominous, that one of his 12, one of his 12 disciples would be a demonic traitor. Now, we see, this is remarkable, uh, notice the Jews were seeking to kill him. We see the very people who were given the oracles of God centered on the promise of a coming Messiah who want to kill that Messiah. Well, notice in verse 2. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now, when John gives us this information, it's not just to scratch our historical itch. He's making a point. Now, under the Old Covenant, Leviticus 23, verse 4, so bear with me for a moment, a teaching moment here. Just stick with this, because this is important to understanding the passage. There were five feasts or festivals under the Old Covenant. According to Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. But there were three of those five that were harvest feasts. And they required the men to travel to Jerusalem every year to those harvest feasts. Three of them, three of the five. And so the Passover in the spring occurred during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was the first feast. It occurred sometime uh, between March and April. And this marked the start of the barley harvest. And so the, the, the Feast of uh, unleavened bread, Passover, marked the start of the barley harvest, and it commemorated the Exodus, where God delivered his people. He glorified himself by salvation through judgment. The Israelites were judged, but they were judged by the substitute as they sprinkled the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doorpost. And through that blood of the lamb, 
They were redeemed out of bondage. That's what this particular feast celebrated. The second feast, which was a harvest feast, a pilgrimage feast, was the, the feast of Pentecost. Now, where's the word Pentecost come from? It's from the Greek word for 50. It occurred 50 days after the, the Passover feast. So this is seven weeks, seven weeks plus a day after the Passover feast. And, and here, the offerings of the first fruits of the summer harvest were offered to the Lord. In other words, you didn't come empty-handed. You offered the first fruits of the harvest to the Lord. The third feast, the third pilgrimage feast, was this feast of booze. We see right here in verse 2. Our feast of tabernacles. It's the same feast. The feast of booze and tabernacles. What did this feast commemorate? It celebrated, it celebrated the completion of the harvest season. This feast occurs six months after Passover. So, chapter six, it takes place during the time of Passover. We saw that in, in chapter six, verse four. Now it's six months later. It's the Feast of Booths. By the way, the next Passover will be in six months. It will be the one in which Jesus dies. So Jesus, starting in chapter 7, all the way through chapter 10, verse 21, this is the time, it occurs in one week. It's the week of the Feast of Booths. And it's six months from the cross. But more importantly than that, the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 2, get this, that the purpose of these feasts, the purpose of these festivals, were to serve as a shadow. He says, the festivals, the feasts, were a shadow of the things to come. But the substance is Christ. Paul tells us the purpose of these festivals, these feasts, was to point us to Jesus Christ. That's very important for us to understand. And so, for the Jews, this feast was the greatest of all. A lot of people think that maybe the, the feast of Passover, unleavened bread, was the, was the most important to them. But no, the feast of booths and tabernacles was the most important. Why? Well, it celebrated that all the harvest was in the barn. As Leon Morris says, tabernacles marked the completion, the successful completion of their labors. They could now rest. It was, a, it was a celebration of rest. It was a celebration of life. The harvest was in the barn. Well, herein lies the great irony. It's really ironic. It's a painful irony. During this time of rejoicing, during this time of celebrating life, because of God's provision that now all the harvest was in the, God, in the barn and God had provided, the Jews were seeking to kill the Messiah, the one in whom this, this feast pointed to. Well, that brings us to the second painful irony in this passage, the, the irony of natural-born brothers disbelieving the supernaturally born elder brother. 
That's verses 3 to 4 or 3 to 6. Look with me in verse 3. So his brothers said to him, so it's during the time of the Feast of Booze, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now these brothers are the natural born sons of Mary and Joseph. So there's no perpetual virginity here. These were the natural born sons of Mary and Joseph. Joseph uh, is no longer alive at this point. Somewhere between Jesus' 12th birthday and his public ministry at the age of 30, Joseph died. We don't know anything else. But these brothers we know from other text were named James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Now it's clear from Acts 1.14 that Mary, along with these brothers, would be among the first to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior after his resurrection from the grave. In fact, James, one of the brothers, would go on to be the leader of the Jerusalem church, the great Jerusalem church uh, right after Pentecost. He would also write a letter. You've probably read it, the epistle of James. He would actually be martyred later because of his faith in Jesus. Jude, one of his brothers, would also write a letter, the epistle of Jude. But at this point, six months out from the cross, his brothers do not believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. And so their motives, and we don't really know what their motives are. It's, it's, it's just un, it's unhelpful to speculate. But we do know this. Their motives in these words to Jesus were not birthed by faith. They were birthed by worldliness. Maybe they liked the attention that their brother was getting. Uh, Jesus was pretty well known. And maybe they liked being connected to, to Jesus. But they had since learned he wasn't as popular as he once had been. Many disciples had left Jesus. I tend to think that's what's behind this. I'm not sure. But they are concerned that Jesus is now losing popularity. If only he had not taught those doctrines he taught that were so divisive. And so, as Jesus' self-appointed chief marketing officers... These brothers say, Jesus, you got to find a larger arena. Maybe Jerusalem. You need to go down to Jerusalem during this time of the booth when all these men are there, when all these families are there, so that they can be reacquainted with your miracles once again. And you can have your popularity restored. Give them what they want, Jesus. That's essentially what they were saying to him. And, and this last sentiment is often found, unfortunately, in some of the fastest growing churches in the world. Give them what they want. Tone down the message. If you continue to teach the way you're teaching, they're gonna continue to leave. Well, 
there's one aspect of this narrative that needs to be considered when a church begins to think that way. Notice in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. This was the sentiment of unbelief. Just tone down the message, start doing these remarkable things, and then you can attract a crowd. Now, I want to say this to those of you who maybe, and I have a feeling, if I were to ask you to raise your hands, the large majority of you would raise your hands. I want to speak an encouraging word here for a moment to you. If you as a believer have unbelieving family members, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but I can tell you, and after having been several years in the ministry now, it's one of the real pains that Christians have to go through when they have uh, parents or grandparents who do not agree with your trust and belief and faith in Jesus. Maybe they're even hostile about your belief. Or maybe it's, it's a sibling. Maybe it's a son. Maybe it's a daughter. Maybe it's a cousin that you are especially close to. It's extraordinarily painful. And in a, in a very unusual way, this text should encourage you. Let me offer these words from J.C. Ryle, who writes that believers often blame themselves because their families remain worldly and unbelieving. But let them look at this verse before us. In our Lord Jesus Christ, there was no fault, either in temper, word, or deed. And yet even Christ's own brethren did not believe in him. And you know what that means for you? For those of you who struggle with the pain of an unbelieving family member, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one we sang about this morning, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, knows your struggle with unbelieving family members. So those of you who are cast down, tormented by that pain, of lost blood relatives who despise your faith, seek comfort in the one who has been tempted and tested in all points just as you and yet is without sin. And he is able and willing to tailor make his grace to fit your painful situation. But also don't be surprised when there's family tensions because of your faith. You should not be surprised at that. Uh, Jesus warns in Matthew 10, verses 34 to 37, that his gospel brings a sword. It brings division, and sometimes it unfortunately splits families, where we actually can become an enemy to those who are hostile to the faith. But beware, believer, in this as well. The divisiveness that sometimes comes between you and an unbelieving family member is not because they're persecuting you, but it's because uh, you have tried unsuccessfully to sort out the wheat from the tares now rather than waiting for the day of judgment. 
And you need to learn from Jesus here. Because what we see here is Jesus' patience with his brothers. He's not rebuking them. He's not getting in their face because of their foolishness, their unbelief. He's patient. And indeed, his patience and his goodness will ultimately lead to their conversion when they behold him raised from the dead. That's our hope for our our family as well. But notice in verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now, what does that mean? That seems so ambiguous. Well, again, you have to understand the importance of these feasts to understand this passage. It's clear when you understand the purposes of these festivals and these feasts, what he's saying here. The time has not yet come for him to lay down his life as the Messiah. It's six months out. And and so, the feast of the unleavened bread, Passover, kicked off the beginning of the harvest year. That observance anticipated the cross. That observance anticipated the cross. And so the brothers are wanting Jesus to promote himself as Messiah during the time of the Feast of Booths. And Jesus understands it would have to be during the time of Passover that he would present himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, the second great feast was Pentecost. Of course, we know from Acts 2 what Pentecost is all about. Um, But it reflected the summer harvest. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, this feast, unlike the other feast, begins on Sunday. Pentecost, the feast of Pentecost, begins on Sunday rather than the Sabbath, which tells us that this feast anticipated the resurrection age when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on believers as the first fruit of the great harvest. And since this was the great harvest feast, it makes sense of that the outpouring of the Spirit would occur during that time. But the Feast of Tabernacles and Booths that we're looking at here, by the way, they would, they would uh, build these booths, these tabernacles, these portable, temporary places of dwelling out of leaves to, to commemorate uh, the wilderness wandering years when, when Jesus or, or the Lord provided so remarkably for them uh, in, in, in that season. And so this Feast of Booths, it represents the, all the harvest is in the barn. So what do you think that anticipates? It anticipates the glory of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it makes sense that Jesus would not reveal himself as Messiah at the Pentecostal harvest until what? Until he died on the cross. Until he served as the Passover lamb. And so the brothers wanted him to reveal himself with a crown of glory 
before he put on a crown of thorns. That's the issue going on in this passage. And we should be so very grateful that Jesus did not heed his counsel or their counsel, that he displayed himself in glory before he took the cross because that would mean judgment for us all. So when Jesus said, your time is always, you see there in that passage, your time is always, my time has not yet come, your time is always here, he simply means that if the brothers go up to the feast, they would simply be fulfilling what every faithful Jew was called to do, to go up to the feast. That's what was expected of them. But Jesus himself at this point recognizes he's proving to be an offense to the world. And he exposed the rot. And that's the reason he was that offense. But notice, um, this brings us to the next irony. Verse 7, the irony of the world hating the creator of the world. Look at me in verse 7. He goes on and says to these brothers, the, the world cannot hate you. But, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So who is the world? The world consists of all people who rejoice at the destruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. All people who are indifferent to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the world. But inherent in this rejection of Jesus is a principle that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 that we've looked at on Sunday evenings. The seed of the serpent seeks to crush the seed of the woman. William Barclay writes, when a man's ideals clash with those of Christ, either he must submit or he must seek to destroy him. And so we all have these ideas. And let me just say, all of our ideas apart from Scripture are fallen and too low. So we have these ideas of the way our Savior, our Messiah should be. And, and they will clash with Christ. They will clash uh, with our Savior. And so we either must submit to him or we will seek to destroy him in some way. And, and just know this, if you publicly identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I hope that you do, they're gonna hate you too. Are you willing to be hated? I don't like it. I, I, I hate being hated. But if you publicly identify with the, with the Christ of the scriptures, you will be, now, sometimes we're hated because we have a, an objectionable personality. Don't blame that on Jesus. If you're obnoxious, don't blame that on Jesus. But if you publicly identify with him, even with meekness and grace, you will be hated. And that's why, at this point, Jesus tells his brothers, the world doesn't hate you because they don't yet believe in Jesus. They're not yet identifying with him. By the way, I do not want to hear at the judgment, they didn't hate you, Brian. I don't want to hear that. And, and that thought horrifies me. They didn't hate you, Brian. Don't want to hear it. I don't want you to hear it either. 
That's why this text is so important to us. So notice in verse 8, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. Now keep in mind, he wasn't going up to the feast in the sense of as Messiah and Lord, displaying his glory the way they wanted him to, in pomp and circumstance. But as an Old Testament worshiper, remember, he's coming as our substitute. So he, he has to be under the law. He has to fulfill the terms of the law. And the law required men to go to this festival. And so as our substitute, as the Savior under the law, uh, that's a whole different story. And that brings us to the next part of this passage, verses 9 to 13, the final part. The irony of Jesus crashing his own party. Now, why would I say crashing his own party? Because the Feast of Booths was about him. <laughs> it was a celebration of the one who would come and bring in the final harvest, all right? The irony of Jesus crashing his own party. Notice with me in verse 9. After saying this, he, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast... Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. That, that, that just infers not in pomp and circumstance as the Savior, but in private. He's coming as a man under the law. It's vital that we have a man under the law as our substitute so that he can fulfill all righteousness that will be imputed to us. But at face value, it, it appears he's being deceitful. But we know he's not being deceitful. Peter will say later in 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So what gives? Why did he tell his, his brothers that he's not going to go up? It wasn't time and then he, he goes up. Well, it's clear he was not willing to go to the Feast of Tabernacles in a pursuit of glory. But as a Jew under the law, he had a duty to do that. And so he fulfilled his duty to God by appearing at this feast, but did so in a way to avoid being put to death. Of course, he did anticipate his second coming and the glory of that. Um, but first, there was the cross. There was the cross. And, and had Jesus pursued end time glory here at the Feast of Tabernacles, it would have meant our judgment. And so it's why he goes in secret. He goes as a, a man fulfilling the law. And by the way, we look forward to what the Feast of Tabernacles points to as well, don't we? Uh, because it... it it symbolizes that all the harvest is in the barn. And again, that's going to occur when Christ returns. And we have the hope of that because of what the Passover symbolizes. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But first, we have to realize that we live between the time of the Passover sacrifice and the time of the full in gathering harvest feast of booze what is that we live in the time of the feast 
of Pentecost. So we live in the time which was marked by the summer harvest of the resurrection age of the church. So what does that mean? That means we have work to do. We live between the times of the cross and the second coming. And let me just say this to every believer here. This is so important for us to remember because until I moved here 23 years ago, I really thought deep down that the Great Commission was only for those who were either gifted with the gift of evangelism or were called full-time overseas. Didn't even occur to me that I'm going to be held accountable for the Great Commission. But I learned that here. And you know that, but we need to be reminded. Every single one of you as a Christian will be held accountable for the Great Commission. Every single one of us will stand before God. What did you do with my gospel? What did you do with my commission? This is the time that has been fulfilled and that, that fulfills the feast of Pentecost. We've been endowed by the Spirit, not just so that you can have love, joy, peace, and patience. You have been endowed with the Spirit because as Acts 1.8 says, that power comes on you so that you can be a witness. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I a witness? Now, it starts in the home with your, with your families, with your children. But it also extends to your neighbor. It extends to the workplace. It ex extends to where you uh, do recreation. That is your mission field. Um, we have um, Lakeview Mobilization. We have people here who are trained for uh, future missionaries who will train you to, to go to the nations. And by the way, we're praying for 12 who will go. And, and so if you have questions about that, the Lakeview mobilization team, come see us. But we all will be held accountable for the Great Commission. We don't all have the same role, but we have that responsibility. Now, back to the text. When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he finds that he was being searched for. And we'll close here. Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? I think they supposed he was going to show himself in pomp and circumstance. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Now, without divine revelation, our view of Christ will be filled with ignorance. That's what you see here. With a closed Bible, our view of Christ will be utterly ignorant, okay? That's why we need revelation. And neither of these opinions were right. Uh, for one, he couldn't simply have been a good man. For, uh, for one, think of what he was claiming, to, who he was claiming to be, the I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, before Abraham was, I am. He couldn't claim to be Messiah and not be Messiah. He couldn't claim to be the Son of God and not be the Son of God and be a good man. On the flip side, if he was deceitful, he couldn't have been good. He couldn't have been good. So these, these claims of being a good man just fall short. 
Furthermore, he couldn't have been a deceiver. Now, there have been many messiahs or false messiahs. There have been many who claim to be the messiah who deceived. Um, 53 years ago this month, there was a, a, a man who deceived many who claimed to be Jesus, Charles Manson. And over the course of two nights, he, he deceived his family of killing, brutally killing eight people in Los Angeles. He was deceitful. But this was not the way of the true Messiah. The true Messiah would not commission people to murder for him. He would die for murderers. He would die for sinners. And until we have come to know, to use Peter's language, until we have come to believe and know that Jesus is the Son of God, we're going to be very confused about him. And even bashful about him. Let's close with verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Interestingly, this passage ends in irony. The one in whom we are to fear above all else, they were hush-hush about because of the fear of man. If I were to ask you to raise your hands, if you've been guilty of that, every single hand would be raised. The one in whom we were to fear above all else, we are hush-hush about because of the fear of man. That's the irony of this ending of this passage. And here's what John is doing. He's writing this primarily to believers. He's seeking to rescue us from that. He's seeking to rescue us from the fear of man so that we might love and fear the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And to do that, what does he do? He gives us these painful ironies that our Lord Jesus Christ was subjected to so that you might be saved. This text is on a rescue mission to rescue us from the fear of man, such manner of love. This is the word to every believer here. And I also recognize this is a past, this is what makes John so special. He writes to believers so that our faith in Christ will grow and mature and correspondingly, our fear of man diminishes. It's like a seesaw. If Jesus is exalted, man is not. But if Jesus is debased, man is exalted. And Jesus is being exalted in this passage for us to deliver us from the fear of man. But it's also a word to every unbeliever here. You have an opportunity to have your sins forgiven. You, you have eternal life at your, at your disposal. If you would just repent of your sin and come to Christ. So as Adam and the musicians come forward, we're gonna have uh, pastors here at the end of the aisle we would love to talk to you, pray with you about what it means to identify with Christ, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have your sins forgiven, what it means to be a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever the need is, won't you come as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. 
If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.